Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to an automotive artist on how to draw the perfect Jaguar. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're well. It's sunny here in the UK. In fact, it is roasting hot. Summer is upon us. And of course, we're counting down to the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage. 4th of July, where finally we all get to hang out together and celebrate those amazing anniversaries. 60 years of the E-Type, 20 years of the X-Type, 60 years of the Mark 10, 70 years since the first Le Mans win by Jaguar in those C-Types in 1951. 25 years of the XK8 and 15 years of its replacement, the X150. If that's not a reason to get online now and book your tickets, I don't know what is, but if you need a few more, don't forget, of course, we've got the gin tasting experience happening. We've got the live action on track where you get to see some iconic Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust cars being driven properly around the Bista Heritage test track. We've got all the trade stands, the retail therapy. I'm sure you'll need some of that in the sunshine after the lockdown that we've all experienced. And of course, that live stage where we'll be having some of the stars of this podcast join us in person for you to ask your questions and also some other celebrities from the world of Jaguar and commentary on exactly who's turned up and what they're driving throughout the day on the UK's biggest portable screen, by the way. That's actually there at Bista for our event. Get your tickets now. Don't miss out on this. It's going to be a fantastic day. 4th of July, jc.org.uk forward slash festival is where you need to go. There are still tickets available, but you must get them now. Please don't miss out. It's going to be a fantastic day that you'll always remember. To keep us entertained as well, and to raise some money for charity, we're going to have a charity pub quiz, which I shall be hosting alongside the JEC chairman, Ray Searles, on Wednesday the 15th of June. That's this coming Wednesday as I record this. It's at 7pm. It lasts around an hour. It's a good laugh. That's basically what it is. It's a chance for us to all put our hands in our pockets, donate a bit to charity, have fun, answer some questions, have a giggle. It's very easy. All you've got to do is sign up via the link on Friday Spotlight, the e-newsletter that you get delivered to you every Friday. Uh, You can click the button there and it will send you a Zoom link or of course you can do it via the events pages at jc.org.uk forward slash events. The listing is on there for the 15th of June and you can click the button register and then get the Zoom link from there. We'll see you on it. It'll be a good fun evening, not too long, just an hour and the questions will be all-encompassing general knowledge. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Also, and this is an exclusive that I'm sharing just with you, the podcast listeners. We have a brand new event in the offing in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, and it's a really special one. It's going to happen this August the 21st on a Saturday, and it will be your opportunity to not only get together and meet your mates, but also to drive your Jaguar as fast as you like up the longest hill climb track in the UK. It's an opportunity you wouldn't get anywhere else. You get it here with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. I think I've probably said too much already, but I just wanted to tip you guys off so that you didn't miss out on the tickets. They are going to be limited. We can only fit so many Jaguars up the hill in one day. 
So it's one of those events you're going to have to wait for and make sure you're quick to get booked in on to make sure that you get the tickets. We'll keep you updated. I'll let you know more information when I'm allowed, when they let me, here on the JC Podcast. Also, of course, you can keep an eye on Spotlight and the events pages at jc.org.uk. But it's going to be a fantastic day to round off the summer where we'll get a chance to take our Jaguars up an iconic hill climb here in the UK. But next, Richard West joins me for this week's Hall of Fame. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, this week's inductee to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Hall of Fame is a designer and a legendary one at that. And one that uh, we've had along at the Summer Jaguar Festival just a couple of years ago, Richard. Uh, We did indeed. And the person in question, of course, is none other than designer Tony Southgate, who, as you rightly say, joined us at Benham in 2019 on that wonderful weekend. And he and I and uh, several others, including Alistair McQueen, Martin Brundle's Ramon engineer, sat at the stately Haythrop Park imbibing and discussing times and successes of old, I'm glad to say. Absolutely. That video, by the way, it's still available to watch on YouTube. If you uh, Google JCTWR evening, you can watch it all. But uh, what we found out from Tony was that he was pivotal to the success of the TWR Jaguar. He designed that car so that it could be built in the way that it would win. But that was something he'd done all his career, right from the very beginnings at Lola, wasn't it? It was indeed, in a very similar vein to John Barnard, who we've talked about before. You know, Tony, equally like JB, was a very uh, non-compromising designer. And there's some great stuff available on YouTube with him talking about the 88 Le Mans winner and how it was specifically sculpted, you know, around the wing formula. And he, he was an expert at that. He had a fantastic career, which I think, you know, as you rightly just said, he kicked that off in Lola. He was born in 1940, so um, although an elderly gentleman now, he's one of those annoying chaps that still looks incredibly well. Um, He started his life out as a member of the 750 Motor Club, um, and that was the training ground for guys that names like Colin Chapman, Eric Broadley, and the late Brian Hart, you know, the engine builder, were all and went on to achieve great success in motorsport. So clearly, he was in exalted company from the very earliest days. He is one of those designers that I've always revered because basically he's designed some of my favourite cars of all time. He was involved in the Lola T70, which has to be one of the most beautiful cars of the late 1960s out on the racetracks. Absolutely. I mean, it was in 1962, I think, that Eric Broadley gave uh, Tony his first opportunity when he joined Lola Cars as a draftsman. Um, he, he got a really wide-ranging level of experience whilst he worked for Lola. And of course, as you quite rightly say, from the one-and-a-half-litre Lola Mark 4A right the way through to the five-litre Lola T70 sports car, one of the greatest-looking cars ever built, I think. It was a huge, fashionable moment in motorsport at the time to have these big five-litre V8s. And indeed, there was a whole formula for them, Formula 5000. And uh, brilliant to see those cars at Goodwood Revival, actually, just a couple of years ago. And Tony Southgate was there with them. Uh, these are thundering beasts, weren't they? And quite a challenge for a designer to, to, to make a dainty sports car or a dainty racing car and then shoehorn this massive V8 in. Yeah, indeed, the V8s of that era were so much larger. If you look at the evolution of sports car, racing car, Formula One engines, 
you see just how remarkably small in relative terms they have become. But it, it, it was keeping them cool as well, because quite clearly with that enormous V8 block, you know, and those huge exhaust manifolds and induction systems on them, actually keeping cars cool was a major challenge of those days. And really, that was when people started to understand, designers and engineers started to understand more about the crucial importance of airflow in and around the actual driving end of the racing car. Well, I mentioned that because that is exactly what he had to do at TWR when he, of course, came up with a design for the famous 1988 winning XJR9. They had to shoehorn a huge production-based V12 into a Group C sports car, and it was a massive challenge for him at the time. And I think that's probably where he learned those skills, way back in Formula 5000. And of course, they sent him out to America, to California, to do all that. But uh, he was soon back in the UK... And he was soon working for a company that's actually was based just down the road from where I live, and that was BRM. It was, but you mentioned he went to the States. I mean, we shouldn't gloss over that one. He went to work for Dan Gurney's All-American Racers, another person we've talked about, and I've had the privilege of interviewing in the past. Um, Bobby Hunter actually won the Indy 500. He won a Southgate's Eagle car. So really, you know, by the time he actually got to BRM, he, he was extremely experienced and also, you know, in great demand. It was his first foray into Formula One proper and a lot of success with those cars and a lot of success with some very high profile drivers as well. He did indeed. He, he sort of hit the first race, I think it was the 1970 season when they went to South Africa um, and the P153 and then ultimately the successor, the BRN P160. The 160 uh, was extremely competitive the following year in 71. Pedro Rodriguez, Joe Siffert and Peter Geffen. And in fact, Peter Geffen, interestingly, went off and uh, won back-to-back races on both the Austrian and Italian Grand Prix. And in, a remarkable man, Peter Geffen. I was fortunate to meet him many years ago. And he, uh, his victory at Monza averaged over 150 or 240 kilometres an hour. And it actually stood as the fastest uh, Grand Prix win for over 30 years. So, you know, drivers, as you say, of great calibres have driven Tony's equipment. And amazing that uh, actually if you go and visit the town of Bourne where BRM used to be based, there is a village called Twenty down the road and it sits at the end of a very, very long straight road through the fens. I have to drive down it to go to most places in the Midlands these days. And uh, that is where they used to fly those cars down that straight bit of road just to test them, of course, before they went to the expense of a race circuit. All of that history in the Lincolnshire Fens. But uh, uh, Tony Southgate actually based himself at BRM in those days, but it wasn't long before he was back to America again, was it? Well, no. I mean, I, th- I think he was one of the, the ilk or um, era of designers where, quite simply, things were moving at such a pace. He was being called upon. Canam pulled him very strongly uh, back into the United States racing scene. But at the end of 72, the Shadow Racing Cars Company, as it was known, headed by Don Nichols, approached him to uh, design a Formula One car to go into the 73 World Championship. And of course, with Shadow having already been involved in Can-Am sports cars, and if we go right back to Tony Dow, the, the team manager of both the IMSA and Le Mans teams at one point within TWR Jaguar, that Can-Am sports car scene was the breeding ground for many, many top people. Um, Tony designed and built the first prototype, the Shadow DN1. It was, it was actually built in a garage in Lincolnshire, which I find amazing these days. But Howden Gamley, I remember, along with Tim Schenken, uh, in my early motorsport career, I drove with a friend past a barn in Windsor. And we went in to see Tim Schenken and Howden Gamley putting together a Formula One chassis 
out of aluminium and pop rivets. So there was still a lot of cottage industry in those days. But quite frankly, going back to Tony specifically, uh, he, he's led a, a massively international career and worked for many, many of the greats on both sides of the pond. Well, all of that experience brought him to sports cars in the end, but it was through Ford that he ended up at Tom Walkinshaw Racing because not many people will know that he was responsible for the design of the legendary rally car, the Ford RS200, wasn't he? He was indeed. He did a lot of the chassis design work on that and also, you know, the, the much uh, vaunted uh, Ian Callum, who we spoke about recently, also had an involvement with that remarkable rally car. Those were really, you know, the supercars of the rallying era. There's a lot of Britain and has been said about them and their competitiveness, but also their propensity to have major accidents because they were almost too quick. A remarkable design. And in fact, again, like the 6R4, the Lancia Delta 037, the Audi Quattro S4, these are cars now that still have performance figures that, you know, would put most vehicles in the world to shame. Well, it was in 1984 that he then, with that project behind him, moved to TWR. And this was where he had to call back on that experience from shoehorning those big five-litre V8s into single-seaters in the late 60s because he was presented with a challenge. The challenge being, we need to build a Group C car. Bob Tullius has already done it over in America for SCCA. They raced as an invitation car in Le Mans in the early 80s. Didn't go too well because of the mishmash of regulations at the time. So TWR's brief was... They had to build a Group C car that was competitive to the World Sports Car Championship rules, but because of Jaguar's involvement, it had to have the production V12 in it. And I remember when we interviewed him two years ago at the Summer Jaguar Festival, the first thing he thought was, my God, that engine is big. That was a huge design <laughs> challenge, wasn't it? It was indeed. I mean, I, when I first went to TWR, I'd been used to Honda's engineering standards in Formula One with McLaren. And I remember walking in and being introduced to Alan Scott and Tony was there and sitting on a cradle in the middle of the room was the thing sort of half the size of a mini, which was that V12 that you're talking about. And uh, it, it again, and I think a lot of that experience from those years in Can-Am and those F5000 cars, again, the cooling was an issue because you had that enormous you know, piece of metal bolted to the back of the carbon composite structure. And cooling played a very, very important part in making sure those cars had the reliability that earned them the uh, wins in Daytona and twice at Le Moines. Well, two Daytonas and two Le Mans, 88 and uh, 90 in, in both uh, world championships. So, yeah, we mustn't also forget in between, we, we almost sort of skipped over it. He had a remarkable time working with Arrows also, he and Lotus. You know, he worked alongside, there was all the controversy over whose design it actually was between Shadow and the newly formed Jackie Oliver team, which was Arrows, of course. There was a court case over it, and then Tony went on to design the Shadow DN5. And he had some phenomenal drivers through that as well. If you look back, guys like Jackie Oliver, Peter Rebson, uh, Tom Price, these are guys that all went through his designs. And I think the aerodynamic skills he had also, he, he spent quite a bit of time working alongside Peter Wright at Lotus on those remarkable Lotus 77 and Lotus 78. So when you actually look at what he achieved, apart from his ability to put these gigantic engines into competitive aerodynamic packages, he really did have an amazing career right the way across the formulas. 
and launched some careers as well. I mean, that car launched the career of Ricardo Patrese and uh, listeners who were fans of Formula One when Nigel Mansell was battling it away at Williams will remember those duels between Mansell and Patrese of the early 90s. And uh, yeah, they came through those those Arrows teams in the early days. Um, what I think is amazing about Tony Southgate's work is, though, good enough that he built the XJR9 and XJR12 that won in 88 and 90. But for some reason and somehow, he manages to make these winning cars also look stunningly beautiful. It almost brings a kind of road car aesthetic into them. And he did that later on as well, because after the TWR era, he then designed another one of my favourite cars, the TSO 10, the Toyota that Johnny Herbert then drove in the early 90s at Le Mans. And most recently, and the only time I've seen my mate Mark... <laughs> cry on a grid <laughs> at, at a motor race was of course when Bentley took the Le Mans win in 2003 we were there we were on the pit wall and again it was another design of Tony's oh absolutely yeah and in fact if, if you think about it just after retiring he got involved in what you're referring to he produced the Audi I think it was the RHC wasn't it um, which became a major influence in the Bentley Speed 8, which, of course, as you rightfully say, won Le Mans in 2003. I think what, what's interesting about him, and he's like he's, got, he's like Gordon Murray, he's like John Barnard, apart from their pursuit of excellence, they also, as does Ian Callum, have this eye for beauty. And although form, you know, is supposed to, functionality is form, form is functionality, I can never remember which way that round that goes. These top designers have the ability to produce cars that not only outperform the competition but as you rightfully say look beautiful as well and tony went on he worked on the ferrari 333 sp and latterly the nissan i think it was the r390 gt1 car wasn't it so yeah a remarkable career and um, i'm glad to say still with us and enjoying life and still going along to classic and historic sports car and formula one races well i reckon the very definition of someone who should be in our hall of fame the legendary race car designer, Tony Southgate. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm going to be learning how to draw cars. It's true. We have an artist in our midst, and it's Esther Jane. Welcome to the podcast, Esther. Thank you. <laughs> well, anyone who follows you on social media has seen your EJ Draws posts, sees the type of work that you do for customers, will be blown away at the cars that you draw. But where did this passion for cars come from, and where did it start? It all began with uh, my car mad parents uh, so growing up in that sort of an environment there was really never going to be much hope for me car wise <laughs> um, we'd had um, a lot of interesting albeit older cars um, that uh, my parents had uh, enjoyed maintained um, and collected um, over the years we'd had all sorts of mostly British variants um, and then not long after I left school um they went and looked at a an xj40 and the jaguar side of things kind of 
went from there really it's it's pretty much been jaguar jaguar ever since on that side was this something that really inspired you then when jaguars arrived in the family and yeah it was um it was around about the time that i was approaching my 17th birthday so i was you know looking forward to to getting my own car and i suppose whilst cars had been a part of my lifestyle growing up I was just about to embark on really getting into cars you know suddenly I was able to buy my own maintain my own and um you know just be able to enjoy and enjoy the the, the petrol head lifestyle so to speak so it was just just perfect timing really for me did you ever imagine at that point that you would actually have a career working in the motor industry as well that crossed your mind or did that come later on came a little bit later on i'm i had in my head i've always been quite arty um and liked cars um my my focus at the time was to do some appropriate studying while i was at college and then go on to university to um to do car design um Again, we were in a time when the internet was becoming more readily available for people. So um, I also spent some of this time looking into the opportunities for getting into car design. And unlike today, where there's so many creative jobs available, it was back then really difficult to break into the art-related industry. So I put my thinking cap on and thought, you know what, the sensible, the sensible way to make a living would be to pursue the more mechanical side of things and that's when I went on um, and uh, applied to do engineering with uh, with Jaguar Land Rover through the apprenticeship scheme. I suppose when you joined engineering at JLR it was still very much a male-dominated way of studying especially through apprenticeships. We have a lot of schemes and encouragement for for women in engineering now. That wasn't the case then was it? No it completely 100% um when i um when i first started looking at apprenticeships i actually wrote to aston martin rolls royce bentley and jaguar um they were my first four people that i approached um i was offered both roles at jaguar and rolls royce um bentley actually said that they weren't uh, undertaking any apprentices that year and aston martin um funnily enough actually messaged back saying uh, you know this was back in pen and paper day uh, thank you for your interest but we have no secretarial roles available <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so um so yeah things have changed but you know even back then i was the only girl on my apprenticeship of 30 to 40 uh, students and does that make a difference? Um, not really, no. Um, in, in fact, uh, having previously studied um, at college in, in very mixed groups, um, it, was, it was probably easier, uh, you know, having solely men around purely from, you know, I'm into cars and I was, it was a time when I was modifying cars and, you know, I still do, but, you know, back then you, you, you were really in groups sort of going out together with your cars. So we all had things in common and we'd all chat about it. Whereas previously, you know, the girls in, in previous uh, classes, uh, they had no interest in cars. What words of encouragement or advice would you give a 17-year-old sat here now thinking, oh, I, I like cars, but, you know, I, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get into it. How would you, how would you advise a young girl of 17 to go about it now? 
There's career advice out there. Um, I'd like to think it's moved on. When I was at school, um, living in Devon, I was pretty much advised hairdressing or, you know, farming or car mechanics. Um, I'd like to think uh, careers advice has progressed a lot these days. Um, For any girls out there, I would encourage them to... um, I would really encourage apprenticeship schemes, actually, because they've um, helped me not only develop my skills, but gain qualifications. You know, I eventually got sponsored to do my full engineering degree. So I've managed to come out um, with a degree and no no student debt, no student loans. Um, and the good thing as well, looking around, there seems to be a lot more apprenticeships are taken a bit more seriously these days. Um, And there are lots of opportunities. And as you say, with equal opportunity employers out there, there are so many places, dealerships, you know, um, local garages, you know, even colleges. If you, you know, if there is a young girl listening and she's serious about looking at, you know, mechanics, engineering, you know, any anything like that, just approach your college because these days they've got so much more advice and there are so many more courses available that you know no, nothing should really stop you and you know and don't be discouraged by the fact that your class might all be males you know I know not everyone can thrive in that environment but it's it's really nothing to be afraid of and you know they'll only be threatened by the fact that you're probably a lot better at the things than they are <laughs> well that's right and you know we have got an engineering shortage of males and females coming into uh, the profession and Ralph Hosier and I talked about it just a few episodes ago on the podcast and you know we discussed the fact that when you're in school if you want to be a mechanic especially it's sort of poo-pooed or or you get sort of get told that you know perhaps it's something better or more academic would suit you but for some reason we've had in the past this culture of engineers mechanics people who want to work with their hands and work with cars as kind of being a, a career that's not to be encouraged do you feel that's that's changing at last do you think we value mechanics and engineers more than we did say 20 years ago i think in some aspects yes we do but i still think there is a lot more that needs to be done so for me a fantastic example is you know when when uh, you know teenagers are studying their gcse's and um, I mean, certainly when I was at school, it was your English, math, science and, and four other subjects, which were, you know, your pretty bog standard and predominantly boring stuff, a, a language, you know, RE and, you know, a, a couple of other fairly sensible, ununique, uh, opp- you know, opportunities. Uh, but the most disappointing thing is I found out not long after leaving school that there are actually that there's more to your GCSEs than just your core subjects. And the reason I bring that up is uh, my brother, um, very, very intelligent lad. He's in the Remi doing extremely well for himself. But academically, he was not the sort that was going to sit through college doing paperwork and get through university. He's very, very hands on and very bright with it. And he got the opportunity to go to um, an agricultural school um, in Somerset um, and do GCSEs and things like horticulture and agriculture. And he did well. And as I say, he's moved on and he's doing uh, brilliantly in the British Army. So there are things like that out there. And I just wish that there were more opportunities in in mainstream schools for these sort of subjects to be offered because there are so many bright people that don't necessarily look bright on a GCSE certificate but could do amazing things with the right support and nurture. 
I can honestly say that 90% of my A-level maths I have never, ever used again since. But uh, exactly. had, had I done an A-level in certain other subjects, you know, how to uh, time up a camshaft, for example, then that would have been much more useful. But, um, yeah, exactly. You know. And that's what's so disappointing, isn't it? You know, there's so many people that could do so much more with their lives if they'd had the right help earlier on yeah because the danger is these people feel like they're not valued or feel like they've got nothing to offer or you know feel like they're probably thick or something but it's just a different right. kind of skill and we need to encourage people that can actually do stuff make stuff we we really do and uh, you know it's, it's easy for me to sit here with with a degree but at the end of the day there's there's more to life and more to a person than a bit of paperwork that says you've got a degree you know and i think and and still jobs in especially engineering they're so obsessed with seeing that degree on your cv that they're dismissing so many potentially you know amazing people it's a, it's, it's a real shame so uh it must be an absolute dream for you knowing that you have this passion for jaguars and for british cars to find yourself at jaguar land rover which is one of the biggest brand names that we export all across the world do you feel like you're a part of history every time you go into work? Does it feel special still? Uh, it it does. You know, um, being being in classic, it's um, it's just amazing to see all the old cars being recognised and and just you know put put out for customers and and enjoyed. Uh, and it's you know it's about time that that people started noticing and, and that's not just just jaguar it's, it's all car brands really um there are one or two that do it well but i think everyone needs to recognize their heritage i think it's a very important thing jaguar classic do heritage particularly well and uh, we have plenty of opportunities through the jec to actually go and have a guided tour of when the world opens up and things get back to normal yeah. of uh, jaguar classic and it's a phenomenal place you work esther it must be amazing just to mix with those cars every day oh yeah i mean it's uh, I'm I'm office based here in my role, but I have a window into the workshop, and just seeing what comes in and out every day is just it, it's incredible. You know, you, you think you could work with a workshop under you, and you'd probably see a, a Ford Focus and a you know a five series BMW, but no, I'd see XJ two twenties, XK one twenties, you know, XJ forties, and it's just amazing. Yeah. So when you get home from work, Esther, now most people would put the feet up, uh, you know, put the kids to bed, all that kind of stuff. But not you, no. Your side hustle is, of course, art. And this has been something that I guess has run concurrently with your engineering career. But you've got a real talent for it. Some of your pictures are stunning. If you haven't seen any of these, you've got to go and check them out on social media. And uh, EJ Draws, you can search for them there. How did this all start? Because presumably you were sort of drawing for yourself as a hobby. And when did it start to turn into things that you were commissioned for? Yeah, so I've, I've always had um, an artistic flair. Um, but obviously, you know, as I said, at, at college, I kind of you know sort of thinking a bit more straight about real career opportunities I stuck with the engineering so I, I didn't really do much drawing after about 17 18 years old um and and then when I had my second child um I was on maternity leave and uh, it was a difficult sleep for the second one so I was awake many hour in the middle of the night wondering what I could do that would be constructive but also relaxing and I started drawing um and I just started just a little bit of sketching, you know, I thought, draw my car, draw my husband's car. 
And then my friends, you know, shared them on Facebook because I was quite proud of them. Then my friends all wanted drawings and it sort of went out to the car clubs and it, yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. So when you get a commission in, presumably someone sends you a photograph of their pride and joy and asks you to then draw it. So how does that process start? Now, I've got myself a pencil, Esther. I've got myself a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> and you, you, you're going to have to teach me how to do this. And I've got a picture of a car in front of me. So where do we begin? <laughs> right. So for me, what I first do is I use... Um, I'm not sure if it's the official name for it, but I use a grid system, which helps me um, get the aspect ratio correct on on the card that I'm drawing. Um, And I I outline the basic outline of the car, pop the windows in, you know, mirrors, doors, wheels, just make sure that everything is correct in proportion to, you know, to the correct view. and then from there, that's just the rough sketch. And then from there, I go over the outline with um, some some lovely uh, Copic multi-liners, which give me a nice solid edge and lots of different French curves, which help give me the nice smooth um, ah, curves okay. that you see on the cars. Yes, these are those big uh, sort of swirly pieces of plastic that you see graphic that's designers That's the ones, using. yeah. Yeah, okay. That's okay. right, yeah. I like the way you fact you just you just say I pop the windows in and and the wing mirrors and stuff like it just they just appear. <laughs> I mean, currently I have two rectangles with some wheels on the bottom. It looks like two shoe boxes glued together. Um, I don't think that's really going to pass as an XJ40 somehow. Uh, some critics of the XJ40 might say I've got it spot on, but uh, we don't listen to. Well, them. <laughs> yeah, you could you could argue you're almost there with an XJ40, <laughs> but I say that in a very loving way. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, okay, so you so you've used this grid, and that sets out where things are in relation to each other. As you say, the aspect ratio. You've now got all of the outline of this car. Now what? Yeah. So now I start doing the shading. Now this is this has changed over the years. I was using just graphite pencil when I started, um, and then I got enough commissions to buy myself a nice set of color pencils. Um, and then after I'd done enough commissions of that, I started treating myself to um, the Copic markers, which are hugely expensive, which is why I didn't delve straight into them at first. Um, and so I use them to to essentially just color it in. Um, it, people often ask, you know, how, how do I do this? How do I draw the cars? And I, I literally just I just copy what I see in the picture, and it just kind of works, which doesn't really help you with your two boxes <laughs> and your four circles, does it? <laughs> not, not really, no. I think there is a definite skill there between linking what your eyes see and what your movements of your hand with a pencil in over the paper end up as. And yeah. I think it's developing that link, isn't it, that you've got to practice over time. It is, and, it, and it's really difficult because people always say to me, oh, God, I couldn't draw like that. And But from my point of view, I just, I, I, I just draw, you know what I mean? I don't feel like it's a particular skill, but people turn around and say, oh, God, no, it is. I, I could never do that. Um, so it is really difficult to sort of explain what I do. In my head, I'm just, copying the picture in front of me and I don't feel I'm doing anything particularly outstanding. <laughs> Do you think it makes you look at cars in a different way when you draw them? Because there's certain details and the, and the shapes and the way things fit together, I guess, that you might not notice unless you're looking at them that closely. 
Yeah, hugely. I have noticed so many things about so many cars um, while I've been doing these drawings. Little little swage lines and, you know, grooves and dimples and, and little features that, you know, you, you might see a car in a car show and say that's nice. But then actually when you go to draw it, you really notice the shapes and, you know, even qu some quite ugly cars. You actually sit there thinking, well, actually, it's, it's been designed beautifully. It just perhaps hasn't all come together quite so nice. <laughs> but, yeah. Other other particular models, perhaps in the Jaguar range, that are harder to draw than others? Because I know artists always say that I think horses are the most difficult thing to draw or something like that. It, I'm, I'm thinking the E-type's got to be a pretty big challenge because of all the curves. Well, you know, I've, I've drawn a couple of E-types and actually I found them quite quite easy overall very simple elegant lines i mean you know when people say it's the most beautiful car it, it really is you know when they say keep things clean and simple and actually that stands out just as much and i find it does you've got the long sweeping bonnet the long sweeping roof line um and and actually it's particularly easy to draw i'd say probably the more difficult ones are the ones with lots of um different features and complicated bumpers or complex wheels i did a, an ss100 with wire wheels and those wheels took forever <laughs> <laughs> they take as long to draw as they do to clean i imagine <laughs> yes yeah I, I was definitely feeling for the owner as i drew them thinking he probably does this every week <laughs> <laughs> do you have any favorites that if someone commissions a type of car that you think, oh, I look forward to, to drawing this? Is it, uh, is it classic stuff? Is it modern stuff? Is there a particular type of vehicle that is a pleasure to draw? I do enjoy all of my commissions, but I have to say something quirky that I know I won't draw four or five more of in my lifetime, mm. things like that really sort of appeal to me. And and I, I moan so much about cars with livery on, but I love the challenge secretly. Just don't tell anyone. Um, and, you know, when I look back and, and look at the, the all the stickers and everything all over it, it's difficult at the time. But when you finished it and you look at it, you think, wow, you know, it, it's come out all right. <laughs> so uh, note to self here, I'll just make a note. Uh, commission Esther to do one of the new Formula E cars uh, from Jaguar. <laughs> Yeah. just because she's bored and got nothing else to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's brilliant well it's been a great insight into how we can all be jaguar artists i suspect though what will happen is we'll all try this grid system and our french curves and everything else and give up and just come to you and ask you to draw our cars so if we want to do that how can we do it <laughs> So if you'd like to get in touch um, and, and have a car drawing done for yourself, um, you can um, email email some pictures to me um, at ejdrawsuk at gmail.com um, or you can go to my website um, and send a message off that, um, which is ejdraws.uk. Um, and most recently, I have set up an Etsy store because I know some people were a bit dubious on, you know, small small websites or paying over uh, backs, you know, bank transfers. Um, so if you go onto Etsy and you just try type in EJ Draws UK into the search, it should come up with my shop. And top tip. Father's Day is looming, dear listeners, and if you're trying to buy for the father that has it all, well, probably hasn't got a picture 
custom drawn of his Jaguar. So uh, ideal gift, I would suggest. I imagine that uh, there's quite a lead time, though, isn't there, Esther? You're not going to turn yeah. these around in a couple of hours. No, no, sadly not. So each each A3 drawing takes between 20 to 25 hours, and that's without a background. Um, predominantly, my drawings don't have backgrounds, um, mostly because my customers just like the focus being on the car. Um, so, yeah, the lead time as I'm doing these around work can sometimes be a couple of weeks. So but I can do vouchers for Father's Day or I am slowly putting uh, some posters together. Um, but I have no Jaguars uh, available as posters yet. So <laughs> It's been fantastic to have you on the JC podcast, Esther, and uh, no doubt no, we'll you see you at an event me. soon. You're a familiar face around the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and uh, we'll see you very soon when we're all allowed out. Of course, yeah. we are going yeah, to be allowed out to Bista Heritage on the 4th of July for the Summer Jaguar Festival. Tickets still available. Get them now. They are via jc.org.uk forward slash festival. Hopefully see you there. Esther Jane, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So I've just about recovered from the disaster race weekend up at Donington and uh, we've now got the car back up in the workshop and two issues unfortunately we had the the obviously misfire that we worked our way through um, and then we had this separate issue where the car was reducing performance intermittently which was obviously really frustrating and it was causing us other issues on the day such as the engine temperatures to raise um, and I was having to reduce performance by actually reducing my throttle input if that makes sense so um, yeah we were having to drive around the issues and it wasn't always there and uh, race two we decided to retire to to obviously avoid potentially causing any damage so now the car's back up in the workshop um, the first thing on the list we can clearly see um, the damage we took from the exhaust is is kind of replaceable it's not repairable so we're going to have to make a couple of rear exhaust boxes to be honest um, they have taken a bit of a pounding so um, that's mainly sort of low curbs that kind of thing so um, the ride height on the car is is fairly low and um, it's very easy to to catch we run them before the rear axle so we don't run over the axle like the original car and they come out the side there so it is slightly lower so we're just going to replace those rear back boxes that's something that we probably needed to anyway um, but that obviously did cause us um, some issues obviously at the weekend with the one the noise and the restriction in that system where the actual center baffle would drop so that, that's something fairly straightforward and something we've just got to fabricate here in house and we've obviously been going over this data to try and uh, work out exactly what's going on and we can actually see that the correction was due to the intake temperatures rising now the temperatures rising are, are caused by obviously the compression of the air of the supercharger the higher the ratio of the supercharge generally the more heat heat you in uh, you generate in doing so so the ecu will apply corrections depending on that temperature and that temperature was was really high unusually high so one obviously the ambient air temperature um, was higher than normal so that is going to help with that um, but this is crazily high and we have four other sensors so we can use an average so that is why the car was reducing performance because it was seeing basically crazy intake temperatures and it was applying corrections uh, for safety. 
which sounds really simple, but at the time we obviously couldn't see exactly what was going on there, um, which is really frustrating. So we're gonna get the car on the dyno. Um, we're going to run various tests, we've put a new temperature sensor on there, the wiring checked out, so I'm hoping it's as simple as that. And then we're going to look at obviously potentially reducing these corrections so that um, it wasn't such a massive decrease in performance if this is to ever have to happen again. But we're going to get it back up in the dyno and do some real hard testing and, and see what we can come up and see if we can mimic the fault on the dyno. And when we can mimic the fault we can obviously adjust the, the settings accordingly. So. Um, yeah, and then obviously we're, we're just going to go back through the car really. Castle Coombe, as I said, is, is my local circuit. Um, I'm really, really keen to have a good result there. I absolutely love Castle Coombe, but it is a hard track to race at with the Jags. Um, those of you who know Castle Coombe, there's very little runoff. Um, it's very fast and it's quite narrow in places, so it is hard to make overtaking moves there. So we've really got to put a good qualifier in um, to get a good race result there. So um, we haven't raced there for a few years, so it'd be really interesting. To, to see how that goes done quite a few laps there mainly not in my car interesting in varying other cars um, but racing there I've actually done very little I think that's actually only once I've raced there with the Jags so yeah really looking forward to that and um, we've also been busy in the other corner with with Matthews XJR um, frustratingly we're still waiting on some parts but we've been able to to start chipping away at the list on that all the engine bays now cleared most of the plastic um, components such as all the expansion bottles cooling system is all ready to be plumbed um, supercharger etc so we are chipping away at that um, I think there's going to be some late evenings on the run up to Castle Coombe um, with both cars actually getting all the final bits done so yeah lots of work to do um, really excited for Castle Coombe um, I'll update you next week with how we're getting on um, we've obviously still got to do the complete vehicle check over so if we find anything else I'll let you know in next week's podcast that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.